Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we have on the program an individual whom I have an incredible amount of admiration and respect for, and that is Mr. Robert Kiyosaki. He is best known as author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the number one personal finance book of all time. He has worked and inspired tens of millions of people to not only grabbing control of their lives and achieving their dreams, but getting the finances in order. Mr. Kiyosaki once wrote, The moment you stop learning, you're dying. Couldn't agree with him more. Here's a person who's so established and so successful, yet he's still seeking out teachers and he encourages others to do the same. And I'm so thankful that he agreed to come on our show and bestow an abundance of his wisdom and great insight. So, let us begin tonight's program with an interview and forensic soul analysis on Mr. Robert Kiyosaki. Our guest today on the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show is Mr. Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, international bestseller. He's also author of the book called Rich Dad's Prophecy, Why the Biggest Stock Market Crash in History is Still Coming. Mr. Kiyosaki, it is a great Great honor to have you with us today after reading your work for so many years. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. So let's just jump right into it. This prediction that you have about the largest stock market crash in history coming, when did you see this prediction? When did you feel it? Why do you uh, acknowledge that this something like this is going to happen? Well, it's kind of a long answer to a short question, but um, mm-hmm. it was my rich dad who was looking at the 401k, which came out, 401k, I think, came into existence as ERISA in 1964. And the more it came out, it's kind of like the Obamacare Act. <laughs> the more it came out, the worse rich dad liked you know, the least he liked it. And he says, this is going to cause a huge crash. And simply the 401k was big businesses saying that we're no longer going to be responsible for employees' retirement. You know, employees no longer have a paycheck for life from the corporation they work for. So the 401k was one way of shunting off expenses from big corporations. And when Rich Dad studied it, he says, oh, my God, this thing's going to crash down. It's like people saying the same thing about Obamacare. So that's where it started. And then as time went on, the more clarity I got as the pieces of the puzzle came together. And then by 1999, when the euro came into being, existence, as as well as, I think, the repeal of the, uh, what's that one, the, one of those bank, banking things, I, it was crystal clear by then. And then they, uh, so 1999, I started writing, and in 2002, Rich Dad's Prophecy was published, calling for the crash of 2016. This crash, there was a big, big crash in 2008, and a lot of people thought the entire system was going to go under. Did you foresee or sense that if there was going to be a crash, that the governments were going to step in, were going to bail out the banks yeah. to keep the uh, thing going? Yeah, bailouts are, you know, bailouts are the name of the game. That's how the rich make their money. They they lend you all this money, everybody screws up with it, and the banks get paid again. So they they collect on both ends from the from the people they loan the money to, but as well as from the government, through the Federal Reserve Bank. So why is this crash going to be unprecedented? Why is this going to be something that, um, I guess, may impact everyone or maybe people are just not expecting to see? 
Well, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, right? <laughs> and so unfortunately, I wrote Prophecy, which came out, started in 1999. Do you remember in 1996, uh, what's his name, Greenspan said, talked about irrational exuberance. I mean, everybody was getting rich. And there was a book called The Millionaire Next Door. It talked about how the average guy could get rich just by buying a house and investing in the stock market. Those are Millionaire Next Door was a sign of a market pop when unsophisticated people get into something they don't understand. So I think 90, 96 was The Millionaire Next Door. 97 was Rich Dead, Poor Dead. And that's when I started calling for the crash. I know. We've interviewed some financial analysts about this crash. I want to know what your perspective is on it. What happens to the average American when this crash happens? Look, in Rich Dad's prophecy, I said there would be a crash prior to Mm -hmm. the 2016 crash. And since in the first 10 years of this new century, we've had three major crashes, multiple times bigger than the 1929 crash. The first crash was 2000, the dot-com crash. Second was the subprime mortgage crash, 2007. 2008 was the banking crash. So I predicted the 2007 and 2008, and now we're at 2016. And the problem has gotten bigger, not better. That's the problem. What's going to happen is it's a possible, probably a 30% chance of collapse of the economic system. It's happened before, but it's never been on a world scale. You know, Zimbabwe collapsed, Germany collapsed, um, China has collapsed, the Roman Empire collapsed, but never has the world collapsed. That's that's why it's kind of frightening. Incredible. So what would you recommend? I mean, in one of your books, you talk about building an ark. How, can you please just tell our audience what that ark is or what you can do to start protecting some of your wealth well, let me, prior to let – me, Let me put it another way, okay? Okay. Because the biggest mistake that people make is they tell their kids, or they were they were told by their parents, to go to school, get a job, work hard, save money, and invest in the long term in the stock market. So the idea was job security would save you from your ignorance, saving money would save you, and investing for the long term in the stock market would save you. Well, I hate to tell you, but saving money and investing for the long term in the stock market are now out. You're out. You cannot do that anymore. You cannot save money because interest rates in 30% of the European nations are underwater, the negative interest rates. And the market is an all-time high because people are coming out of savings and they're going into the stock market. So to invest in the stock market right now is insanity, and to save money is insanity. So before you start thinking of what you're going to build your arc of, you've got to figure out what's left. What can you do? What, what is going to hold its value? If, and I hope it's only an if, my rich dad's prophecy comes true. So that's the question. And what's real? What's not real today? Well, that's the question I have for you. What is real? What is going to withstand the test of time if this crash does come? And what can you have to protect your assets in periods of high inflation or even hyperinflation? Well, it's either hyperinflation or collapse. Okay. And that's why the young guy, Philip Haslam, H-A-S-L-A, M. It's called When Money Destroys Nations. It's a very, very well-written book, simple yet accurate, and he describes the collapse of Zimbabwe because he's South African. So he snuck into South, he, he snuck in from Johannesburg into Zimbabwe as a college student and studied the collapse of Zimbabwe. 
So it's, I'll say the book again rather than try to tell you in a few minutes. When Money Destroys Nations by Philip Haslam, H-A-S-L-A-M. Okay. It's a very well-written book, very clear, accurate, but it's heart it's heart-rending because he actually has uh, quotations from people of what they were going through as their money went to zero. And to tell you the story, you know, some people just committed suicide. Some people just died. You know, that one person sold their house, the money lasted, it lasted like three years, and they died. So I think I, more than more than any other book I have read so far, it's When Money Destroys Nations by Philip Haslam. You want to read about that, you'll find out what's real. And one of the quotes I think is interesting is what became money was um, tampons and toilet paper. Oh. You know what I mean? It got down to that bad. And it was just, it was just, the government put up more military, more police, try to force you to spend the money, but, but people didn't want the money, you know, the Zimbabwe dollar. So if you read that book, When Money Destroys Nations, you'll have a far better idea of what's real. So what's real is that, you know, like some of the people who had businesses that took in Swiss francs and uh, a pound and dollars, they did well. But the people who depended upon importing products from Switzerland, uh, Germany, uh, England, and the U.S., they, they died. They couldn't they oh. couldn't buy the raw goods. They couldn't buy the products to sell. And then food sounds, became the most important resource. Then gas it's unfathomable to think about that happening here. And you know, you have this era where I've always heard that my parents say, you know, you want to teach, uh, you have to learn the value of a dollar. I'm always kind of curious, in today's era, how do parents teach their children the value of a dollar when, when they are working for something, they're getting a piece of paper that, I mean, by all means, it's a coupon that's losing its value by the minute because of the rapid inflation. So how do you teach your children about wealth in today's modern era and teach them that you know, their time and effort and energy being converted into value? Well, that's why I wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, published in 1997. Rich Dad's lesson number one is rich don't work for money. So when you, ch- you say to a child, go to school and get a job, you're screwing the kid. You tell him to save money, you're screwing the kid. When you tell him to invest for the long term in the stock market, you're screwing him. If you can money. understand that, the problem is our money. It's our money, stupid. You know what I mean? Well, is the economy stupid? Well, it's the money, stupid. So that's why Rich Dad said never work for money. He never paid us. Yeah, parents, all oh, I've got to pay my kids. Well, don't pay them. Uh, one of the things I love, I mean, I, there's so many quotes that you have, but uh, I always love this quote that you're talking about saying, you always want to pursue, always learn, always seek out teachers. And your life and experiences, who have been some of the uh, most profound teachers that have impacted your life? And what types of teachers do you feel that people should seek out if they're not only trying to become financially literate, but literate about the ways of life. Well, let me tell you this story. You know, like um, after I graduated from, I went to military school. Then I went mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps and went to flight school. And I could tell the flight instructors who had combat experience and those that didn't. How's that? You see, most school really? teachers have no real world experience. That's the problem. They're employees. Yeah. They've got the job, they work hard, they save money, they have a teacher's pension, and they know nothing about money. So when I was, so I went to the advanced 
uh, Marine Training Camp Pendleton, California. That's when I met, you know, Marine pilots who were just off, just came back from Vietnam, and that changed the way we flew. It changed everything. So there's a big difference between teachers who live in the textbook world and teachers who live in the real world. And that's one of the big defining moments. You know, I, I don't, I'm not good at golf, but I've had horrible golf teachers and great golf teachers. And it's not the game of golf, it's the teacher, if you can understand that. So you got to find a teacher that fits you, but also comes from the real world, not this BS uh, textbook uh, university stuff. Okay. And when you're finding teachers in the real world, I mean, there are some people that are very, you've seen a lot of kids at college these days, and they seem like they're, they're very book smart, but they don't have the street smarts. How do you? Can you actually be successful in one or the other? Can you be? Can you manage to make it in the world just by being book smart, or do you need street smarts? And well, if you were going to choose one, of depends, depends on your environment. You know, my poor dad was my. He was a PhD in education, Stanford graduate, all that, but he never. He was never outside of school. He started school at age five in kindergarten, and at fifty-five, he was still in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> He had no idea what was going on in the real world. Uh, yeah, good man, smart, highly educated. Let me give you another position, more more relative to or people can relate to. 2012, Obama was running against Romney. Like, I'm not Republican or Democrat, I'm not political. But but Obama disclosed that he paid 30% of his income in taxes. I think he made 150000 or something. Whereas Romney made millions and paid 15% in taxes. And the poor middle class go all upset. They say, well, you know, Romney's a crook. Well, that shows financial ignorance. An intelligent person would say, God, maybe I'll go find out from Romney how he can make so much money and pay less in taxes. <laughs> 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 you know, who do you what want as a leader? Somebody who oh, I, I, makes you know, one person pays less taxes. Oh. I'm just curious, from your perspective, though. What do you think of three common misconceptions that you find that people have about wealth, and uh, what are some of the quickest ways a person can become financially literate? Well, I think it's just desire and ambition first, and, and hopefully moral, legal, and ethical values. You know, uh, Washington today is called the Washington, D.C., the district of corruption. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not polit political, but the Clintons don't earn money the, re the regular way. <laughs> <laughs> they have a unique way of doing it. So, anyway, you know, I'm not political. I'm just saying, you got to look at how a person earns our money, and then you want to decide, well, who is my role model? That's really the thing. You know, I always, I didn't do well in Sunday school either, and I'm not pumping any religious dogma. Just, just in case anybody from ISIS is listening to this, but anyway, because <laughs> 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 I'm not anti any any religion or anything like that. You know, I believe in religious freedom. But anyway, um, when I was in Sunday school, like I said, I flunked out of that too, there was uh, the story of the three wise men seeking Christ. And that's what makes a person smart. They keep searching for new teachers. The worst people on earth, I think, are accountants, I mean, uh, doctors and attorneys, because they're A students. They did really well in school. I would say probably 60% of their minds are closed shut. They actually believe they know everything on planet earth. So my friend, who is a high, high-priced CPA, he says, I don't take doctors and attorneys as clients because you can't teach them anything. <laughs> you 
Wow. The good news is, is doctors and attorneys pay the highest percentage rate in taxes. But they're the smartest guys in school. <laughs> <laughs> so nope. be like be like the three wise men and seek you know, Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, whoever you want to keep keep seeking greater teachers. That's uh, that's a really great inspiring because that's what we do on our show. We're always trying to seek great teachers. And I'm curious, when you wrote your book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, would you surprised at how successful it became when you first wrote it? And why do you feel that so many people regard it as such a truly important book to have? Uh, well, I should tell the story real quickly. Is The book had to be self-published because every one of those academic geniuses like my poor dad turned the book down. <laughs> they said, you don't know what you're talking about because they're employees. Rich Dad was an entrepreneur. So they didn't like the idea that rich don't work for money. They didn't like the idea that your house is not an asset. They didn't like the idea that savers were losers. Now, you look at history right now. In the last few years, people have found out in 2007, your house is not an asset. It's a big, fat liability. And after the banks are, the feds are printing money with the cooperation of the U.S. Treasury, savers have found out savers are losers. So the hard part for me in getting Rich Dad, Poor Dad published was getting it past the academics like my poor dad. When this book comes out, so many people embraced it, yet it was you know, completely against some of the common thinking. And when you have an idea that is so maybe ahead of its time and it's so fresh, how do you allow an idea or let an idea permeate the consciousness of a collective group of individuals who are not conditioned to embrace new ideas. One of the things we talk a lot about in our show is cognitive dissonance, which appears to be encompassing a lot of the nation because they don't seem to be able to see these collapse coming, which is maybe obvious to a lot of people, or they're not able to embrace other forms of new ideas. They're still doing the same things that their parents were doing. So of all the things, why did your book connect, and how were you able to convey a new idea to a group of people nationwide that maybe would not have been able to accept it even five years earlier? Well, because i it's really a spiritual book. You know, I didn't write the book to make money. I was already rich. I just wanted to educate. I didn't care if I made money or not. Too many people care if they make money. You know, that's why they can't do anything. You know, they have to do it to make money. Again, rich has lesson number one. Rich don't work for money. So I did it because I felt compelled to do it. That makes sense to you. I did it because if I didn't do it, I would hate myself for the rest of my life because I knew something I should have shared. If a person can devote maybe only one hour a day to building their wealth, get one hour between work and the kids, what do you think they should be doing in that hour to maximize the highest return on investment? Well, it depends upon the person, but I always recommend people – uh, not so much do what they love, but do what they see needs done that they want to do. For example, the reason I became, you know, I was, I'm a real estate guy, but I just started going to seminars and I assist and teach. And, you know, every seminar needs volunteers. So I just volunteer because I loved helping people. I loved helping people about money and things like that. So for probably 10, 15 years of my life, I would go and I'd assist at, you know, business seminars, investment seminars, new age seminars. 
I would do all those things. I just give my time. And the more I gave, guess what? More I received. I didn't I, wow. I don't want I don't work for money. I didn't want to get paid. I said, I don't need the money. I just want to be able to give. Give and you shall receive. And as you know, there's too many people that don't give unless they receive, and even after they receive, they don't give. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then they wonder why their lives are messed up. When people watch shows like Shark Tank or The Prophet, do you feel that they're giving others an unrealistic expectation of what to expect in life? Do you feel that there are any shows out there that are putting negative messages or counterproductive messages into the mindset of people who wish to start their own businesses, who wish to be successful? Or do you think they're actually very positive? Well, there's no such thing as positive or negative. It's always positive okay. and negative. Like my Richard always said, all coins have three sides, heads, tails, and the edge of the coin. So when I watch Shark Tank, and I like them too, and I, I like the profit, I watch them, and I stand on the edge of the coin. Now, can you can you turn somebody into an entrepreneur watching a television show? I don't know. But some of the lessons are priceless. Some of the things are stilted, you know, and it's not realistic. But I think the one thing they don't say on all the shows, it has nothing to do with the product. You know, oh, I have a great idea for a new product. Well, products are a dime a dozen. You know, ideas are trillions per dozen. I mean, there's all over the place. The thing is, can you take that product to market legally and ethically and morally and derive a product? I mean, derive a profit. <clears throat> that's what they don't go into. There's a skip that's a step that Mrs. Guy presents as a product, and then the next time you see him, he's a millionaire. So there's a, something lost in translation. The one of the quotes I love that you've had is you said this word directly. Um, Success is a poor teacher. We learn the most about ourselves when we fail, so don't be afraid of failing. Failing is part of, of success. We cannot have success without failure. Can you please let our audience know what you feel are your three biggest failures and how those failures ultimately captivated you to higher realms of success? Well, uh, first of all, let me go back to the school system. That's true. Okay. You know what? You know when I when I was in school, I don't know if it's changed anymore. But I would take let's say a ten a ten question test, and if I had five right, I got an F. And they threw away. They never said what I made mistakes on. You know they they looked at the five five right answers, but they never looked at the five wrong answers. And the five wrong answers are more valuable than the five right answers. So if you understand that. You understand why failure will lead you to success. So one of the mistakes I made is I loaned my friend, an entrepreneur, a hundred thousand dollars that I had. I didn't have the money, so I borrowed it because I trusted the guy. He ran off with the money. Now his business collapsed. This is in the seventies. But the good thing was I got screwed, and I had to buy. I had to take over the business. Now if I hadn't given him the money and got screwed, I wouldn't have taken over the business. And I learned more about business trying to figure out the wreckage of his company. That's how I got smart. So if you can understand there's no such thing as good or bad or right and wrong and failure and all that stuff, they, they go hand in hand. Remember that school teachers look at the right answer. The most valuable thing is the wrong answer. What does the child know? What don't you know? So, you know, my friend who is, he's a great book, it's called A Second Opinion, it's by Dr. Radha Gopalan, and 
he talks about East and West medicine because he's a doctor of cardiac, cardia, he's a cardiologist, but he's also a doctor of acupuncture, so he's East and West. But he, ta- he talks about it's the unknown is where learning takes place. So the trouble with most people, the reason they're poor today is when I say savers are losers, the market's going to crash and all that, they don't go into the unknown, they retreat. They get smaller, not bigger. So it's only until you go into the unknown. What you do not know is un- until then do you get smarter. So that's really fantastic. And if you were going to look at today's millennials, do you feel that there's hope for them? Are you hopeful for them? Do you think that there's a lot of things that they could be doing differently? Um, are you hopeful that they're going to have a substantial impact on the on the workplace in the years to come? I've heard a lot of you know pros and cons and complaints about the millennials, and uh, mm. but I. I'm a baby boomer. There was also a lot of complaints about us. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I was just, you know, when I was in school, I was just as messed up as many of these kids. But anyway, it's. Uh, I think the most important job for me to do is not criticize, but the reason I write and I teach is to leave behind like bread com- breadcrumbs for anybody who wants to follow the breadcrumb. Okay. And has your spiritual beliefs have they have any direct impact on you, and do you feel that people who engage in maybe other forms of spirituality are more likely to be in a better flow or be in touch with um, financial abundance from your perspective? I don't know that answer. All I can tell you is this is my life changed when I stopped. You know, I was I was in the rock and roll business. I had bands mm-hmm. working for brands like Police, Duran Duran, Iron Maiden, and Van Halen. And I was having a lot of fun as an entrepreneur in rock and roll. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. I didn't do drugs, but there was a lot of sex and rock and roll. And then one day I met this man named Dr. Art Buckminster Fuller, the guy who created the geodesic dome, and he asked me what my life's purpose was. That was a novel question. And when I told him it was to make money, he scolded me. And, you know, Bucky was a dropout of Harvard twice and all this stuff, but he became one of the world's greatest geniuses. So that was in 81, and from 81, I studied with him. 82, I studied with him. 83, I studied with him. And I said, basically, what is the biggest problem that I am capable of solving? What problem can I solve that needs to be solved? Not how much money could I make. You know, how many people can I serve? And that's when the story of rich dad, poor dad came clear to me. That's why, in real life, I had a rich dad and a poor dad. It seemed that was the, that was my destiny to tell that story. And so the moment I went on to just teaching for, for to leave behind breadcrumbs for future generations, the moment I started doing that, my spiritual wealth came up. I mean, good things happened, bad things happened, but things that, that Bucky would say were, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't expect them, they're unpredictable. Wonderful things, bad things too. But every bad thing was really a good thing. It's a really interesting uh, way of looking at things. And I love one of the, another quote I loved that uh, you had was, one of the most stupid things you can do is pretend you're smart. And when you're smart, you are at the height of stupidity. And when I heard, remember that quote, I heard yeah, that for the first yeah, time. Yeah. I'd always heard people say, well, you know what you have to do? If, you're, if you don't make it, you've got to fake it till you make it. You've got to let people know that you know, you've already made it even though you haven't uh, made it yet. And I was wondering, does that quote and that, and that philosophy um, cancel each other out? Are they, are they at odds with each other? Do you think it's bad to pretend that you're intelligent, pretend that you're successful when you're not? 
I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are about that. Uh, there's a time and place for everything. You know, there's no like right answer or wrong answer. This is the right way. The thing I do is that I uh, really I have a lot of spiritual teachers, and they guide me to my spirit. See, every human, all we're all humans, but we're different beings. So inside every human being is you know mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. The spiritual part is really quiet. You know, you don't hear from God very often. And, but most of the times we're listening to our emotions, our minds, our sex drives, and our anger, and our egos, and our arrogance. So we don't ever listen to our spirit. So I have people that guide me to my spirit. And it's that silence. It's a stillness. Like Eckhart Tolle writes about stillness. You know, there's solitude, and there's silence, and then there's stillness. You get into stillness, you're there. God. The trouble is I can't shut myself up. <laughs> <laughs> if you can think about two people in your life whose work or words that you've spoken to them had the greatest impact, that you feel that you know had the greatest impact and turned their lives around, who would you say those individuals are and why? That I affect you. Impacted yeah. or they impacted me? Oh, that they actually that they impacted you? Uh, well, one, one with both my dads. You know, they were both great men, rich dad and poor dad. Mm-hmm. Like I said, my dad was, he entered school at age five and he got fired at 55. <laughs> <laughs> and he found out that te- what he was teaching was BS. <laughs> I, I kind of find, you know, it was cruel. He never recovered because it crushed his spirit. He could not recover. And he was not trained mentally or physically or emotionally to be an entrepreneur. He didn't have it. He's an employee. So when they cut the paycheck off and the retirement plan, he had had it. He just didn't have, you know, the chutzpah, my Jewish friend would say, to recover. Then my rich dad was also a great teacher, but he was an entrepreneur. And, again, all coins have three sides, heads, tails, and the edge. And the intelligent thing to do is stand on the edge take what you want you know there's not right or wrong there's just different sides of the same coin and when it comes to gearing your mindset towards embracing financial abundance knowing that you want to have a better life do you feel that if you cast out your intention of just helping others that you're naturally going to gravitate or pull into your experience events, people, places that are going to let you kind of gravitate naturally towards financial abundance? Or do you feel that sometimes that it is almost better to have a clear focus goal in mind, set your set your sights on that and gear towards that and let that goal within your mind kind of take you there? I mean, a little contrarian. The trouble with having a goal, it's small picture. I just quote something from, from Lord Rothschild, August 6, 2016. August 6, mm-hmm. 2016. This is Rothschild, the Rothschild Bank. This is this is the greatest experiment in monetary policy in the history of the world. In other words, we're going to collapse. So if you're looking at your goal of, you know, selling 10 widgets or whatever you want to do, you missed the big picture. So again, if uh, again, if all coins have three sides, there's big picture and small picture. When a person sets a goal, they've got to take into account the big picture and the small picture. Again, this is the greatest greatest experiment in monetary policy in the history of the world. We have never been here before. We have never been here before. 
The question is, do you know what's real and what's not real? Just like my poor dad, when he spent all those years teaching people things in school, he found that what he was teaching really didn't help people. So that's when you kind of go, what the heck was I doing? And I think it's time to wake up. Again, I'll recommend that book by Philip Haslam, P-H-I-H-A-S-L-A-M, Why Money Destroys Nations. I would look at that. I would look at what happened in Zimbabwe, and then you get a picture of what you can do yourself now. But you got to look at the good and the bad. Okay. There's this quote from Anne Rand that I love. It says, she said, you could ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. And when she says that quote, I think about this, that you have so many people in the world that believe in that debt-based system that will do whatever they can to fight for that system, yet this crash may occur and it may turn the whole things around. Do you think that people's belief patterns could be so strong that they could fundamentally defy the laws of supply and demand? And if so, can that belief, that strong-held belief, push the system on going on indefinitely? Or is this thing unsustainable and it's going to have to collapse regardless of what collective humanity is currently putting their energy into? Like I said, 80% chance of collapse, but something is definitely going to change. But let me tell you something. Stupidity is infinite. (laughs) (laughs) I have my own share of it, too, you know, and all this. So I have my own share of it. I still seek wise men. I, I thank you for the questions. I like the spirituality side more than anything else. I like to think I'm doing good work, and if I'm not, I'm I correct if I have to right away. Okay. So and the final question we have, the final question we have for you is: You'd mentioned that you have some spiritual teachers. Are they? Can you please tell who your spiritual teachers are? I'd rather not because they're pretty controversial. <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, religion—that's what some of the things you don't talk about: money, sex, religion, politics. Mm. I talk about uh, money. <laughs> Mr. Robert Hirosaki, I want to tell you what a great honor it was, sir, to have you on. So much respect and admiration for your work. To learn more about Mr. Kirosaki, please go to his website at richdad.com. Plenty of great updates. Please check out his books. Mr. Kirosaki, great, great honor, sir. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Joining us now is the Phoenix Rising. Internationally respected psychic media, Miss Carrie O'Connor. We can learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor and get a soul analysis and psychic analysis of Miss Carrie O'Connor by going to her website at carrieoconnor.com. Miss O'Connor, what can you tell us about Mr. Robert Kiyosaki? Mr. Robert really intrigued me because he really talk about a system buster. Stuart Wilde would have absolutely, I'm sure he loves him, is laughing his ass off. I love the rich dad, poor dad. He, I love Ryan his message of he didn't do anything for money. I love how he just nonchalantly said, "I already have money. I'm already rich." I, I, he did it from his heart, you know. And he's got that gold rim around his heart. He's an educator. It looks like he has keys going from his heart, so everyone can learn from him. He's a very humble, humble man, and he has a lot of information to wake up people, especially at this time. Okay. And based on his energy field and what you kind of gauge about it, do you sense anything about any previous lifetimes? Oh, I've seen him as king, pharaoh. I've seen him as a beggar, poor. He's done what I call the theme of extremes, which most very old souls have. So he's experienced everything, and it's in his soul history, and that is what 
drives him, especially where I literally see him as a beggar, where he had limbs that were um, deformed or in also like brothers or sisters that he felt responsible for. And then other times when he was had extreme wealth. So he remembers that at a cellular level. And it's interesting, even the name of his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, it's it's a reflection of, of those lifetimes. If you look at it, the soul group residence for where he um, is in this particular life incarnation, do you see anything about his soul energy group or this collective soul group that he's in that would resonate with other people who are famous throughout history? Does he have any distinctive energy readings uh, for people that you've, we've had on the guest previously? Yes. Uh, we've had on the show previously. Absolutely, Stuart Weil, David Ike, the forerunners that aren't afraid to say what they say because Ryan, they don't care. They don't. They, they believe with what they believe in, and they don't have to have approval. I love that he self-published, and then all of a sudden everyone else grabbed their book after, you know, you know published him. It's, I, I love it. Okay. As far as what he's able to manifest, what do you think his uh, remainder, for the remainder purpose of his life, what do you think his goal or maybe his sole purpose is for the remainder of his lifetime? You, to, you can do this too and more. I just heard that loud and clear. You could do this too and more. You know, regardless okay. what your current circumstances are, get out of the box. I love the three-sided corn coin image because that's what I've always lived on is the edge, and I just love that he kept on saying over and over again, life, three and three sides of the coin, the small picture, the big picture. And so many times we get stuck in the small picture or the big picture, and life is about being on the edge. To me, it's like Jesus' messages to be in this world but not of it, right? Excellent. Yep. Miss Carrie O'Connor, the Phoenix Rising internationally respected psychic medium. Thank you so much for being with us today. Loved your analysis. Thank to you. learn more about yeah, to learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor, just go to our website at carrieoconnor.com. Thank you so much, Miss O'Connor. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure. Joining us now is the Astrophenom, our astrologer, Miss Constance Dallas. You can learn more about Miss Constance Dallas and get your chart done with Miss Constance Dallas. By visiting her website, ConstanceDellis.com. Ms. Dellis, what can you tell us about Mr. Kurosaki's astrological chart? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, I find all charts interesting, so I guess that's a silly thing to say. But what what strikes me, because obviously I know about his books and I know a little bit about his uh, philosophy and his phenomenal uh, financial success, and um, uh, I don't know any other details about his biography, but he is an Aries, um, and his moon sign is Scorpio. So you've got Aries ruled by Mars, and in ancient times, Scorpio also ruled by Mars. Right now, we consider Scorpio ruled by Pluto. But that is a heavy-duty dose of um, assertive yang, um, aggressive um, in a positive sense, energy and he is a pioneer in the way he is putting things together uh to get his message out and one of the why why it's interesting to me i mean if somebody were just kind of make money make money that wouldn't be interesting but he has um three positions in uh pisces which is the really sensitive, uh, receptive, caring, compassionate sign of the zodiac. And so this combination gives him uh, a perspective of uh, trying
make sense of how it is that we come to our values and our um, expectations about money, which is a pretty fundamental thing. And he, he um, I would expect that he may have had or been at least aware of problems or dynamics in his own father-son relationship that kind of catapulted him forward. I don't know if I would say problems, but um, I would say that the, the relationship that he had with his family um, went uh, to extremes, sometimes very, very um, strict and... and um, narrowing, other times very powerful, and, um, you know, push-pull, push-pull. And this um, sensitivity to how people's emotional outlook sensitizes them towards their financial success, their ability to put themselves forward, is um, an interesting way of doing things. And... um, he, I think, has succeeded in uncovering a um, uh, philosophy of of wealth, which has more to it than the dollars and cents. Um, so I guess I've gone on a little bit here to say that I think that he's quite a high-minded and a compassionate individual and used his talents to open doors for people in a way of going forward in their own success life. I want to say, based on his chart, based on what you're able to see about how a person of his, of other similar qualities, do you think there are some um, financial decisions that he he didn't make or may, or ones that he probably could have made better just based on the natural um, characteristics and qualities that come with his birth sign? Yeah, I wonder, uh, because I think that he made his first chunk of money in real estate. Is that correct? I believe so, yes. Well, uh, it's surprising to me because almost every person who um, is heavily involved with real estate has a heavy earth emphasis in their charts. Earth is Taurus, Virgo, or Capricorn. And uh, Mr. uh, um, Kiyosaki has no earth, none. Uh, So that's a little bit um, interesting. It means to me that his intuition, his feeling mechanism, his kind of perception of the big picture is not a logical, calculated, practical type of decision. It's more um, intuitive and, let's say, right-brained. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but that he has a a sense about these things. And um, if I were just looking at this chart, I would say this person, um, if they had made their money in commodities, in oil, in um, precious metals, plus stocks, that would fit. But he did something different. Miss Constance, tell us the astro phenom. Thank you for your very thorough and uh, well-detailed report. Thank you so much. To learn more about Miss Constance, tell us. And to get a chart reading of Ms. Constance Dallas, please go to our website at ConstanceDallas.com. Quick reminder, you can also find Ms. Constance Dallas at the Huffington Post, where she writes regularly. Thank you so much, Ms. Dallas. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a good show. Joining us now is the angel reader, 
lovely, respected psychic medium of past life reader, Miss Laura Lynn. You can learn more about Miss Laura Lynn and get a reading and analysis with Miss Laura Lynn by going to her website at angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, what can you tell us about Mr. Robert Kiyosaki? He's fascinating. I love his energy. I love how inspirational he is. And it seems to be that that's what I picked up so much from his past, especially a lot of Tibetan energy. I did feel like he was a Tibetan monk in the past and that he really had a wonderful sense of humor. I'm talking about maybe 100, 100, maybe 50 years ago. And he just enjoyed uh, particularly embracing and engaging children to learn about light, about the energy of uh, complete light. And he seemed to be a minister of some type or, you know, absolutely a monk, but uh, he really engaged children at the time to help them read and understand how to learn more about the energy of 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 power and and beauty of the universe. Well, you, from what you just described, it sounded like somebody who was, I don't know, very evolved, somebody detached from this world. What would be the purpose to be returning to another life if you are at a level where you have such you know apparent uh, detachment? Oh, I would think that coming back to this lifetime, being in the business world and allowing yourself to also um, enjoy owning things and being, you know, a part of growth, but also being inspirational for others to grow also, it's it's seeing two different types, sides of the playing field because he had detachment in his past or his former life, he didn't really own anything. He lived very simple in a simple way. This lifetime, he's doing beautiful as far as achieving a success. So I feel like he's taught people in both, you know, enlightenment on how we can enjoy the physical existence in its totality, either in a simple way or allowing yourself to enjoy the the pleasure of, you know, those things that maybe are not easily attainable by most. Right. And do you see or vision any other past lives? Really, that's what I picked up was a lot of, um, you know, lifetimes with inspiration. And I, you know, really couldn't tag into others other than I felt that there was some pretty deep uh, um, wisdom there. And, you know, I did, I felt a little bit of energy, maybe Peruvian, but I didn't capture it enough to be able to describe it to you. Okay. As far as the remainder of his life, what, what is there anything else for him to work on for the duration of his life? Or is he, uh, is he pretty much have it all set? He's just here to reap the benefits of, uh, you know, all the efforts. Well, I do. I feel like he's living an energy of grace now. I feel like any karmic effects that's happened in the past life, he's already worked through. And, you know, we all have things that come up and layers to work through, but I feel like he's at a nice time now where just embracing his friends, his circle, 
is really what Spirit wants to see for him so that he can enjoy not only the, um, you know, the, the conditions of his life, but also the hearts of the people that's in his world. The last question I have for you, Miss Lynn, is is there any particular angel or spirit guide that he could, you know, communicate with more or make an, uh, an effort to communicate with more that has a particular affinity or liking for him? Is there any particular being that really wants to work with him more that he hasn't actually begun to work with yet in his lifetime? Well, that's a wonderful question because Haniel was the angel that came through me to help me focus on this gentleman, and he, Haniel was... Uh, um, very helpful in in allowing me to understand particularly the Tibetan uh, reality. And Haniel would welcome his presence. You know, he could probably most likely be able to tap into Haniel just by focusing on the color yellow through his third eye and uh, meditation. And Haniel will be more than glad to bring information to him and be, walk on his way in a stronger, stronger direction. Miss Laura Lynn, the angel reader, thank you so much for your in-depth and very great analysis. And to learn more about Miss Lynn and to get a reading done with Miss Lynn, please go to our website at angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Joining us now is the clairvoyant cowgirl. And an actor respected psychic medium and empath, Ms. Lisa Kaza. You can learn more about Ms. Lisa Kaza and get a reading with Ms. Kaza by going to her website at lisakaza.com. Ms. Kaza, what can you tell us about Mr. Robert Kiyosaki? Well, the very first thing that struck me was definitely like the just the generalized energy it, itself surrounding him. So is his aura. And he has a lot and I mean very predominant blue and green light and energy about him. And it's, it's, you know, a lot of people know the colors metaphysically. It's all about success, money, security, prosperity, but also dedication and lasting values. And But the thing is, green is also the color of healing. So when we take a look at that, though, uh, we take a look at his work throughout the years. And basically what he's trying to heal is actually humanity's beliefs and behaviors associated with money and abundance, because as, as we know, money is energy. And so he's trying to heal the beliefs of, of folks with regards to anything related to abundance. Um, the next thing that I was struck with was he has a, a number six life path. And that number is all about responsibility and awareness. So again, he's trying to create that awareness regarding how money is energy and how actually so easy it can be to manipulate. Um, one thing that I like about him is that, you know, when those around him are, you know, somewhat losing their heads kind of thing, well, he's, he's the one who will take charge. He's a very take charge kind of person. And he's all about caring, um, like I said, healing and teaching others. He's, he, what I struck, to, what struck me as well is the amount of sympathy that he has for other people, as well as a very, I mean, not very, extremely strong sense of justice. 
So, you know, if he perceives uh, an injustice somewhere, he will truly sacrifice all his time and effort to set things straight. So when we, again, we take a look at the work that he's been doing all these years regarding abundance and money and finance, well, the, in, the injustice that he perceives is the, the lack of awareness and a lack of uh, knowing the truth behind abundance and money. Again, like I said, he's trying to heal humanity's beliefs and behaviors associated with it. Um, did you put, and did you anything about his previous lifetimes? I was about to get to that. Very, very interesting. And it isn't too often that I come up with very specifics. <laughs> but this one I did. Um, the one, I was shown one past life where I got all these uh, the specific information. Um, point blankly, I see him as being a native Indian chief. And specifically, Iroquois. I find that interesting because I live in Iroquois Falls. <laughs> but uh, um, the Iroquois, uh, if folks know their history, they started out trading furs with the French and the English fishermen. Um, and then the Dutch and English uh, came in to settle, which would have been New York uh, City and Albany. Now, by about the 1640s, this is where I'm seeing him as coming in, many areas used by the Iroquois for gathering furs became exhausted. So what happened was um, a series of wars, basically, were initiated. And that went on for many, many years like after 1700. So I feel that he was involved in these wars because um, the Iroquois, what they did was, their main goal, basically, was to monopolize the Great Lakes fur trade, and they wanted to receive more trade goods from the Dutch and the English. So this is what I see him as, as doing. He was wanting um, to receive, like I said, the more trade goods. And uh, as, a, as a result, though, unfortunately, and again, people can look this up in, in any history book, uh, the Iroquois actually destroyed some tribes like the Erie and scattered others like the Huron because they wanted to have more of the abundance. So there's that connection with the abundance. However, the lesson that was learned in that past life was that you shouldn't be stepping on other people's toes to get oh, it. Because one thing I noticed about uh, Mr. Kurosaki, I, I thought it was very striking, is that I would consider him a master in this lifetime. He is somebody who is a master, who masters a skills or many skills, and mm -hmm. yet he constantly talked about how he's always seeking out teachers. I thought that was so incredible and so awesome, and I was wondering um, what the significance of that is because I usually when I think of a master, I think of somebody who just who earns and people go to them, but he seems to be continually seeking out other teachers, even at his level. I just don't mm -hmm. know um, what the significance of that is. Well, I'll take you back to that past life just as an, as an example. Um, well, there is another past life. I saw him as being a Buddhist monk. That's where he got all, a lot of his writing capabilities. But anyways, um, to try to get to my point quickly, within a lot of Native tradition, um, you take a look at what's called the Seven Grandfather Teachings. 
And one of, uh, one of those teachings is that of humility and remaining humble is the second one. They go hand in hand. He has carried that with him into this lifetime for actually many lifetimes. And I would have to say that him being a Buddhist monk would also have a lot of influence with that. With that. So he has a great sense of humility. Um, he knows that we're all connected, even if just on a subconscious level. He knows that we're all one, that we're all connected. And when you remain humble and you have that humility, not only can you teach others, but there's no end to learning either. You can't know everything. If you knew everything, then you wouldn't be here. So that's his humility. Miss Lisa Kaza, the clairvoyant cowgirl. You know, I should respect the psychic medium and empath. I want to thank you so much for your incredible analysis. To learn more about Miss Kaza and hey, get a reading with Miss Kaza, please go to our website at lisakaza.com. Thank you so much, Miss Kaza. Well, thank you, Ryan. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our incredible guest, Mr. Robert Kiyosaki. What a great honor to have him on the show. Special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Lisa Kaza, and Miss Constance Zellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show and to download some of our other shows, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. So the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much, as always, for listening to our show.